People who haven't dealt with their trauma, who haven't dealt with their pain, they are hurting and they are acting out their trauma and they are hurting others. The way to break the cycle is to heal yourself and deal with your hurt so that I can stop living out of my pain. There's a different way. It's almost weird because I feel like that's the gospel. and correspondence about spiritual de- and reconstruction. Season 3, Episode 7, Death with Benefits. back to episode 7 of season 3. Each episode this season has been borrowing sounds and themes found track by track on our producer Derek's new album Targets. The thing is, when you get to the seventh song, which you just heard some of, we didn't specifically gather much in the way of conversations on this topic. I mean, we kind of specifically asked for something a little different, a little further down the line in the process of grief giving way to a renewal. But I'm very much struck by this song and the space it holds within the ultimate story of renewal. What is expressed in it is important and certainly matters to what we're trying to offer up this season. So to have this episode somewhat dedicated to taking that moment where we recognize the grief even within Reconstruction itself, I think that matters because Reconstruction is complicated. 
The length of the process we're in can sometimes leave us longing for simpler times, or at least more simplistic ways of seeing the world. Not so much in missing the ideas themselves that we used to hold, but in nostalgia for that sense of clarity we used to feel or think we felt while holding them. It's not the same for everyone, but there's a particular tension which can exist when you find yourself a no longer attached to these former certainties, and yet b missing the confidence and sense of self they gave you. You can change or lose your theology all day long, but it's the former sense of mission and identity and purpose going away that really tends to be more difficult. And the gravity of that is something that comes and goes in waves. Someone I know originally from Facebook, whose current Twitter handle is Mel Nye the Science Buy, which is amazing, said something this past week that perfectly encapsulated that part of the process for me. And so, with permission, I'm going to quote it verbatim here. It's okay to mourn the life you thought you'd have. It's okay to feel oddly distressed and conflicted that you're living a life drastically different than what evangelicalism said you would be. It's okay to be frustrated that you were fed lies about what your options were. I love my life, truly do, but I still have permission to grieve the version of me that I was told I had to look forward to being my entire life. That version of me is dead, good riddance, and God damn it, I can be upset that I have to recreate myself and re-envision my entire life. I guess the main point here is simple. Reconstruction is not all happy dances and lightness of being. Plenty of the process will take us into the shadows. If we don't deal with trauma, we will perpetuate the cycle of it, weaponize it, and even develop an unhealthy dependence on it for a new identity, living only from our pain. But even in dealing with it, trauma can have a way of fighting back. It can rebound, it can cling, it can trigger. It can even leave you longing for those simpler days when the world was black and white. Much of the conversation you're about to hear features someone entering a richer world, a world of color, free of so much of this repression. It's so worth it, but it's tough. It can be frustrating, and it's hard work. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing just fine, how are you? Great. So, we actually heard from you, we had a submission on file from early July of last year, and we were kind of already done taking calls for season two, and so it just has sat there for a long time, but I was looking back through submissions and saw yours again, and some things you mentioned, and, and wanted to catch up, just because what you had said had been that there was a thread you were pulling, and that you wanted to keep pulling, and so... So wherever you'd like to start, you're welcome to start. Yeah. Well, I'm a pastor's kid. I was born and raised in this. Went to a Christian elementary school, middle school, high school. And they were all Assemblies of God affiliated, so more charismatic. I was planning to be a missionary out on the mission field. Everything had been so concrete 
and, and I look back at it now and, and and it's almost as though the church just deals in answers instead of trading in questions. Mm-hmm. Doing ministry school, I've worked at churches, doing facilities work, uh, but I've also preached, uh, I've done youth work, I was a youth pastor for a year or two, and so much just kept unraveling. And then a friend of mine sent me a podcast for the airing of grief. He sent me some podcasts from the liturgists, and it started giving language mm-hmm. to these underlying thoughts. And when language coalesced, it just, it almost took it into like hyperdrive. It's like suddenly I had tools to build something instead of just trying to figure things out with with mud and sticks, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and so my unraveling just, it it took off last year. And I kept it on a back burner. You know, part of my, my story is that I was born and raised in Hawaii, um, and it was so culturally acceptable and actually encouraged in Hawaii to be large and fat. Uh, But I I, I took it too far. I was, you know, super morbidly obese. I I topped out at 426 pounds, Mm. and I had a gastric bypass surgery about six years ago now, and uh, I've lost 170 pounds. And, and so I was focusing so much on on my health. I had started to gain some of the weight back. And so I was engaging in, in physical activity. And that's when I started getting language to it. But I, I put the deconstruction on a back burner because I was focused on getting physically fit. Looking back at it, it it's kind of amazing to see it with clear eyes of how much of my person was constrained within my body. I had certain ways of being, uh, ways of getting in and out of the car. And and so during the time of of getting active and fit is that time of rediscovery. Um, How do I exist in this new body? What are the things that I actually like to do? Because I've discovered I like to go backpacking, like camping out in the mountains. Uh, I, I like doing Spartan races Mm. and and endurance challenges. And and part of it's just been a curiosity. I had known I have issues, trauma, things like that, that, you know, needed to be dealt with. I just never wanted to deal with them. And my wife would point it out and be like, you know, you have really unhealthy views around... Um, women and sexuality and, and and I could recognize it and I could see it but I, I didn't know how to deal with it mm. and I kept putting a, the deconstruction the uh, dealing with my issues and things like that on the back burner because I was focusing on health uh, physical health and then once I was done I was like okay you know because that was in May of last year and so I started going to therapy in June You know, I, I would say that, you know, if I was going to self-diagnose, there was aspects of alexithymia, which is the inability to feel and express emotion. 
And I just felt so repressed and so bottled up. And my comment to my wife was, I feel like I have these emotions. I just have don't have a mechanism to externalize. I don't have a mechanism to express emotion. I don't know how to express joy. I can sense that there's something in there when something happy or joyful or exciting happens. I just don't know how to how to communicate that to the world. Hmm. And so started going to therapy, started dealing with issues of some, you know, childhood abuse. My brother suggests that we dealt with emotional neglect. My brother was working on his master's degree in counseling. And so he did a lot of his own work and was encouraging me. And so then I started doing my work and going to therapy, confronting these things, having hard conversations with my parents. And I still have some more conversations with my parents to have around deconstruction now. Mm-hmm. Just dismantling the idea that the scripture isn't complete, that it was written in context. It requires reinterpretation. And that is the thread that I've been pulling for so long now. I feel like I've thrown away all of the answers that doctrine and evangelicalism have provided for so many years and I'm really trying to embrace the questions again Mm -hmm. just dismantling all of it I feel like I've gotten to this point of it's not agnosticism but it's almost like apathyism and I've heard some people comment that I just don't care anymore I don't care what the answer is. And, and I can debate the scripture all day long. I've, I, grew, I grew up in it. I've heard thousands and thousands of hours of preaching. I've done my own preaching. I've got my degrees. And now I just don't care. Mm-hmm. And that, <laughs> that was really scary. Uh, it, it still feels, I feel like the word would be heresy, uh, but it still feels heretical for me to, to liken my approach to Buddhism. Buddhism's four major truths. Life is pain. The source of pain is the struggle to control. The way to end the pain is to stop trying to control. And then the way to stop doing that is the eightfold path. Mm-hmm. I feel like a year and a half ago, a year ago, instead of trying to control my faith, I opened my hands. And now it's much more of an open-handed embrace And to describe my faith in terms of Buddhism still feels like heresy, but that's just because of 30 years of indoctrination. Mm -hmm. But I can see that. And because I can see it, I can name it. And giving that name and giving it language helps to disempower it. Mm -hmm. Well, that heresy, too, would be something that's coming from a modern expression of Christianity, but... Yeah, I'm not sure it would be something to worry about in the ancient sense of Jesus yeah. was nothing if not the universalist of his day. He really wasn't interested in creedal affiliations. And I mean, that's kind of the great thing about him that Christians don't seem to appreciate at all, was that he was like, Gentile woman, you're in. Totally, you get it. Uh, Roman <laughs> centurion, you get it. Uh, yeah. You know, Samaritan, you get it. And much to the 
depression and anger of his own tribe. I always wish that that more Christians would, you know, especially those in pulpits, would recognize that and kind of, like you said, see that in its context and then embody it in ours. Because if you're going to follow the guy, it'd be nice to make that adjustment instead of, yeah, I mean, you know, being but so But that doesn't preach. Right. His whole thing is just like, let's not condemn. Let's heal. And, and that's where my deconstruction has led me, is trying to find healing, going to therapy, physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. There's been so much spiritual trauma and hurt that I've seen perpetrated. I feel like I have perpetrated some of it, having been in ministry for many years, that the mentality is like, oh, well, let's just say a prayer and cross our fingers that the great butler in the sky will magically and miraculously heal the wound of whatever is wrong with you. And going through therapy, I'm like, oh, that's not a demonic oppression. That's trauma from somebody's childhood that's been undealt with. We have methodologies and means to heal people if we can engage in their trauma. And yet the church just says, let me lay a hand on you and pray for you. And, and that, I, I want to say that works, but the evidence is just so clear and contrary that it doesn't. And so it's like, you know what? Let's genuinely help people. Let's heal people. And churches, they can provide sometimes a place for that healing to exist. And sometimes they're just doing more hurt, mm -hmm. you know? And But at the end of the day, it's the community, I think, that is providing healing. You know, my brother, he told me very straight, the trauma happens in relationship. And so does the healing. Mm -hmm. Meaningful relationships where you can experience vulnerability and safety and emotional wellness and have those things modeled for you. And because of his comments, I started going to a men's group. It was not faith-based because I spent so many years in church men's groups and this men's group is just, it's a men's process group that's facilitated by a therapist. And I can talk about what's going on in my life with other men. And I can have healthy emotional relationships and experiences modeled to me. I can have compassion and empathy modeled, which is helping me to then express that because it's providing me that mechanism of like, oh, that's how you respond to that. Because for me, I didn't know how to respond to that, which is, you know, my journey towards health of like, okay, I need to figure out how to embody these emotions, how to, how to let my wife know that I love her, that I'm interested in her mm -hmm. because I am and I do. And she's saying that I'm getting better and I'm feeling better, which is, you know, why, you know, when I emailed you, I'm so excited for this season because Six months ago, seven months ago, was before I hit the depression. It's when I was starting to deal with my stuff. And then I hit the depression in October of dealing with the behaviors and the symptoms that were covering up the hurt of what I have done, what 
has been done to me. It was a good six weeks of depression. Mm-hmm. I was encouraged being depressed because it was an emotion that I was feeling. It was sadness. It was grief. It was something visceral. It was something yeah. visceral and real. So therefore it was, yeah, I, I understand that. And then it ran its course. And now I, I feel happier. I have joy. I have, even at work, I feel just empowered. I had to tell our IT director there was some change that was going on. And I was like, that's not what you guys said was going to happen. And you guys established this boundary and this time frame, and now you're changing it on us. So you've crossed that boundary. And my mentality now is I'm just going to let you know that I'm unhappy and, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And within half a day, we got this retraction email and all this. And it was like, wow, actually being vulnerable and expressing emotion and talking about how somebody's actions are affecting me and make me feel. I've yet to have a negative response to it, (laughs) which was like, I was so terrified of. Mm. So people are more tender than you thought. Yeah. You know, like going through therapy somewhere along the line, I picked up this message that emotions aren't safe. And I don't know where I got that message, but it has just been sitting with me for eight months of why. Bessel van der Kolk writes that emotional abuse and neglect can be just as devastating as physical abuse and sexual molestation. He also states that in order to heal, we must have an understanding of the source of the wound. In studying and researching the realities of neurological development, it became apparent to me that there are distinct disadvantages for individuals who are born into and raised among fundamentalist evangelical belief narratives. In early childhood, when so much about brain chemistry and behavior is being determined by internal response to external experiences, being raised with frightening and apparently inescapable beliefs can result in the kind of trauma that is often neither recognized nor recovered from easily. Children encouraged or required to believe their body is evil instead of good and that they cannot trust themselves have had imprinted upon them a particular way of viewing themselves and the world around them because of the ways their brains developed through their early years of receiving these messages. So often, for those raised within evangelical environments, any single moment of perceived failure, any mistake, any step outside the previously established lines can paralyze with life-altering fear, anxiety, shame, and dread, because the trauma of early teaching is essentially playing on a loop within us. Our brains developed in a state of restriction, hesitation, and lack, rather than a state of permission, wholeness, and freedom. This is why any misstep threatens identity, threatens worthiness, and threatens belonging. Because of being raised on such thin ice in relation to our human nature, 
and the whims of an abusive deity that Jesus had to come and pacify and prevent from harming, torturing, and abusing us forever. When raised to believe that left to our own devices, we deserve to be punished and tortured forever, worthiness, belonging, and safety are entirely conditional. Our comfortability with our own identity is conditional. Pleasure becomes dangerous, pain becomes discipline, and discipline masquerades as love. The unraveling, like when you find one thread, you start finding others. Yeah. And that's been the hard part is unraveling scripture, unraveling doctrine, unraveling physical health, unraveling spiritual health, emotional health. And then I started pulling on the, the, the string of like modern American masculinity. And like, what is this script that I'm having to abide by that says I can't be vulnerable and I can't coordinate with other people? I must be autonomous and independent. It, it's just so unhealthy. And so I've, I've been unraveling my masculinity and it's some aspects are so freeing, but then when you start seeing things, you see it everywhere. And then that's depressing. <laughs> and now I'm on the other side of it where there's just like, oh, okay, that's just, that's what's going on. I can have some grace for that. And because I can see that I don't have to have, negative feelings towards a person i can have compassion mm -hmm. because i can see what they're going through it's it's terrifying and it's wonderful at the end of the day i've gone through all of this and i've let go of all of the questions or all of the answers and i tell my my wife I tell my friends i'm like honestly i feel closer to jesus than i've ever felt in my life and I feel further away from the church than I've ever felt in my life. And I've made my peace with that. And I'm just going to love people regardless of it. I don't feel like I've lost my faith. I definitely don't have the same faith I had. say that to you that are that are scared of the process you're going to they'll use that phrase of losing faith as though you are experiencing something gone that actually served a full function what you've lost is actually something you determined to be a false construct so yes. now there's grief associated with that there's a vacuum associated with where you used to place different things like like derek's been talking about and like his new album is all about where those targets are there is, there is definitely that process of loss, but it's not because you got rid of something you actually fundamentally found to be substantial. It's because you recognized for the first time that it had always been missing, that you'd, you'd falsely propped up on something that didn't turn out to be there. Um, yeah. So it is not really the way that the people who challenge folks going through that process, it's not really as they perceive it to be because they can't see it past their own processor, their own experience, but... You know, what you're saying is is just great because it sounds like you keep coming back to that being the thing you fought the hardest for that you've learned. And and I think you're right. Like you said in the beginning, I think we should mistrust any organization that tries to deal authoritatively in answers but fails to deal honestly in questions, you know, as as the first thing. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a good rule of thumb. 
I think that when we say the word God, a lot of that is what our hope is wrapped up in. And my hope was in things going a certain way and having all the answers it used to be. And I, I actually was just like writing this down yesterday that my hope was in God, but I lost that hope in that particular construct. So what I'm learning to do is build a better hope because that yeah. actually becomes part and parcel to building a better God and not a, a simplistic, magical, dogmatic, detached, foregone conclusion sort of hope, but an embodied, creative, engaged, active hope. And But the thing was that before I realized that, it was much easier for me to just, hit, in continuing in that same detached fashion, to build a better God theologically, but not actually connect that to having built a better hope that I was active as a participant in. And uh, and that that for sure has been the harder part for me. So I resonate with a lot of what you're saying in the sense of really experiencing things for the first time, just allowing yourself to be entirely present in a way that you haven't been your entire life. And, and there's, it's such a long process to undergo. Yeah. I mean, there's one of the issues has been the reinterpretation of experience. Being raised in the church in some of the more charismatic streams, there is aspects of faith. And I have had mystical experiences. And I have seen some things I can't explain. And those firsthand experiences, I'm having to reinterpret the supernatural because it still exists based on my own experience. And that's one of those things where I haven't been able to let go of, or I've, I, I, it's been a longer process of letting go of how those experiences have been interpreted. Because there is such an easy answer in the doctrine around these things. Mm-hmm. But I can't deny the experience, but I can reinterpret it and say, okay, there are things that are going on. And when you look at mystical experiences and what it is providing people and things like that, that's been one of the hardest parts for me of deconstruction is how, how do I still not deny my own experience? Mm-hmm. the sensations that my senses have given me, the things that my eyes have seen and my ears have heard. It was so tempting to just try and find as many babies as I could to throw out with the bathwater and, and just reject everything possible. But I've tried so hard to not throw the baby out, to, to, to still hold on to what has been true of, yeah. of yeah. As my own experience. But it's, I mean, it's fair to feel that way and to learn to have that sort of grace for yourself because when you experience trauma there is there is something about you that's going to once it registers that and even before is going to try to protect you and so the bitterness is is real and it's not unwarranted you know we're, we're told so much as christian kids that bitterness is just this instant evil and it's taken real seriously but it's a, a genuine emotion. And yeah, and it's in place because of ways we've been victimized. And so it's unfair for authorities doing the victimization to harp on that one human trait so much when it just so happens to conveniently bolster their own credibility and authority. Bitterness is a protection mechanism. Yeah, exactly. We've been hurt. I've been hurt. I don't want to be hurt like that again. Mm-hmm. And that's what bitterness is, 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 is the aversion to that trauma. So if somebody's bitter, well, it's because 
They have a reason to be. And that's okay. Blessed bitterness. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like protect yourself. Don't get hurt. Don't, Don't be a victim again. And really only in processing those things, like not, not blinding ourselves to them, but processing them for, for real and truly feeling those things and dealing with those things is not only the only way we're going to protect ourselves, but it's also the only way we're going to protect other people, not only from the same aspects of the institution, but from those same things we might do to them. Perpetuating that cycle, just because we've seen so much of it, we could fall right in line with perpetuating it. And only in confronting those things that cause trauma is is really like not only how we save ourselves but how we protect other people and so it's another reason to to be real with everything there yeah so the big impetus thought that occurred to me when i made the decision that i was going to go back to or go to therapy after dealing with my physical health was this thought of hurting people hurt people and it and it's just this this maxim that's out there, and I've heard it for years. And then I finally read one therapist's comment on it. He's like, yeah, absolutely. People who haven't dealt with their trauma, who haven't dealt with their pain, they are hurting, and they are acting out their trauma, and they are hurting others. And he said the way to break the cycle is to heal yourself and deal with your hurt. And for me, I was like, oh, my God. That's why I need to go to therapy is because I need to break the cycle of me hurting so that I can stop inflicting trauma and hurt on people so that I can stop living out of my pain. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's my criticism of, of, of some of the things that I'm seeing in, in, in the culture is, is we keep embracing our pain and our hurt and identifying with it instead of healing from it. And it's painful to watch people living from trauma. And I feel like that's a heavy criticism, but there's just, there's a different way. It's almost weird because I feel like that's the gospel mm-hmm. of you don't have to be hurt. You can be healed. You can find healing in communities that are safe and accepting and that can model for you what healthy relationships are. You can go to a therapist who has dealt with their stuff and can be a safe place for you to process and deal with your hurt and emotion. But then there's the work that you have to do on your own of of your letters, of the conversations, of being bold and brave and courageous to have those tough conversations, but to still provide those experiences. I feel like that's the gospel is like find communities you can be vulnerable with and have healing and that's not what we're getting with the church instead we're getting communities of that are perpetuating the issue that are causing trauma because people aren't dealing with their stuff because of whatever is going on and it's just like there's so much more hope Mm -hmm. to love people to be loved to be whole and to be healed it's invigorating it's energizing to, to find that When I started going to therapy, I made a commitment of the only way for me to remove the stigmatism of shame around being a man going to therapy was for me to talk about going to therapy without shame. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm like, yeah, I was in therapy. I was talking to my therapist. And I was doing this, talking about child abuse, talking about this and that. I am intentionally, assertively trying to express emotion and, and vulnerability. And I've yet to have a, a negative experience. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that that boldness, just in talking with coworkers and talking with friends and being honest and real can provide them an opportunity. You know, if, if I'm a safe space and I can model vulnerability, then maybe they would feel safe enough to be vulnerable and find some aspects of healing. The safer a person you become, the safer people you'll find. It's, yeah, it's something people, you'll do hand in hand when you yeah. get to, to express vulnerability and transparency in a way the institution didn't allow. Uh, you know, the, the person at the front of the room at the pulpit comes out and says, how's everybody doing? As though in a room of hundreds of people, there's this collective answer that's the same. But to do that in a community of where people are expressly coming to, to find meaning and to find depth of relationship is, is, you know, it's like a lot of times that's the first thing you hear in a service and it's instantly cheapening. Like why, why are you being a hype man from the pulpit when the day before you had a funeral, like it's just not a sacred space for hype, right? And one of the one of the things in a in a regular community that holds sacred space for one another, I think, is the awkwardness that comes with a constant realization recognition that everyone is in a different spot right now. Our unity doesn't come in our hurrah, yay! Our unity comes in that we recognize that we are all there to complement and supplement each other in that moment. Uh, and yeah. that, that means we don't have to all find the same happiness in the moment, or we don't have to all find the same guilt or reason to grovel, which is the only other thing we do or tend to do in church services, but that we would actually be there with a quiet, peaceful acceptance that we're all in a different spot. We're all trying to hold each other's hand a little bit. You know, if if I've ever wished for anything to happen in church, it's been something along those lines. I've never really seen it I don't know how it's done. I'm interested in seeing that done. Uh, I would in, love to see that. I mean, church has become a place to only share your joys, but to bear your burdens and your sorrows and lo- alone. And that just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's have that space. And if, if the pressure for the organization is to act out in that way, then what happens is there's an expectation on people that they should have a real, legitimate, authentic experience, and yet we're not going through the method or means to do that. So we're trying to create something authentic and lasting in people by doing something that's phony and inauthentic. And so there's a, such a huge disconnect between means and ends there that so few in, in any position of authority seem to recognize. It's like, well, we're trying to do something fake here, and we're hoping that it will do something real. And it's like, well, why don't you try doing something real and see what happens? You know, why don't you, why don't you make yeah. space, hold space for everything to be real and see what happens? It might be pretty cool. You never know. Yeah, you never know. I, I do suspect, though, that a portion of it might be, again, I've been unraveling my masculinity, and masculinity within the church is really unhealthy mm-hmm. with these, you know, we need to empower men to be the head of the household of, you know, you need to be a king, you need to be a warrior 
uh, you know, all of these hyper masculine aspects. Like in my redefining and unraveling of masculinity, I've discovered uh, to be a healthy uh, man, I just need to be a healthy human. And I need to embrace the whole spectrum of my being and my emotions. But the only modern masculine emotion that you can have is contempt and anger and maybe sadness if your sports team loses. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> That's just not healthy. And yet health in my own journey has been to embrace everything that's been denied and so when you have these movements within the church body it's like let's not have men be tender and when you have the vast majority of churches being run by men you're not going to get the depth and the breadth of the human experience when everybody in charge is massively repressed and it's a harsh criticism, but that's why when I went to therapy or when I went to my men's group, my first criteria was it can't be faith-based because sitting in men's groups is all about how can I be a better man? How can I be a better leader? Not necessarily control, but you know, influence my kids and, and set a better example for them of how to be strong and how to you know, engage in the world. It's just like teach them how to be a human being, model for them how to be sad when you need to be sad and how to let things out and how to how to express anger in a healthy way and how to do all these other things but that's not that's not what the church is about it's not encouraged for men to be emotional and yet i'm discovering for me being emotional is the healthiest thing i've ever been able to do in my life why have we repressed this for so long and I, I, I'm just trying to be a better human. And when I look at masculinity and femininity, at the end of the day, there's not a single feminine trait that wouldn't be a positive trait for a man. And there's not a single masculine trait that wouldn't be a positive trait for a woman. Mm. And now I'm just like, okay, well, let me, I just want to be a good human being. I want to be a healthy human being. Yeah. And that, that's, it's been a big change. Been a healthy change. It's been a big change. Wow. Well, I am so thankful, first of all, that we didn't connect with you till now because I think this is really perfect conversation <laughs> for the upcoming season. It would have been great anytime, but I think particularly yeah. now. Um, so thanks for this. Thanks for taking the yeah. time. Kevin, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Same here. And uh, yeah, you have a great night. Thanks again. Yeah, you too. Okay. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Bye. Bye. Hey, though I'm no longer on that call, I am still here. And this past week... I saw that our producer Derek had posted something that fit so much of what this episode was taking shape to be, I had to include it, even as a postscript. He said, Fell down a rabbit hole of old pictures tonight and had a thought. Don't romanticize hard and destructive seasons. The truth is, it wasn't fun or deep or cool. 
Happiness and health is possible, is hard work, and is worth it. So wherever you are on that journey tonight, take heart. I think that's a good place to leave it hanging until next time. So thanks for listening. Thanks to our patrons for supporting this work. Lots of bonuses over at Patreon to be found if you want to help with the podcast's production. Check out jamieleefinch.com to get a book or hear more of You Are Your Own, which we featured Jamie reading in this episode. Check out derekweb.com for music and all things Derek Webb. And we will see you all next week after church for the airing of grief. I just miss the mirror